Okay, can you hear me okay at the back, yeah? Okay, welcome to this, uh, this uh, event, uh, this evening organized uh, by the LSE, LSE Ideas and support from the school. Uh, I, I said the other night that if you put the word America in the title, you'll get 150 people. If you put the word world in, you'll get another 50 people. If you put two years on, you'll get few people. But if you put Trump in the title, you get another 200 people. And, and in a way, the, uh, it's been proven here this evening. I think Peter also organized an event the other day on the midterm. So whatever one thinks of President Trump, certainly he, uh, he, he, he creates a great degree of interest in world politics and in the United States at the center of the world. And so this evening, we thought we would, two years on, after the uh, November elections, which brought uh, Donald Trump to the White House, we'd reflect on the, uh, on, on the world as it is, uh, what policy has been, what the consequences have been, and what the future brings to us in over the next two years, and whether it will be a one-year, a one-term or a two-term president. Now, I'm very pleased to bring to, bring to you what I call an all-American team uh, this evening. I'm not going to go into all the details of who they are. Uh, firstly, on my far left over here is my old friend and buddy, uh, John Eikenberry who teaches at Princeton, who is well known to you all, I'm sure. You've made him a fortune by buying his books over the years. Well, that's what he tells me anyway. Uh, and John at the moment is up at, at Oxford at All Souls enjoying the luxury of Oxford. I said to him in the green room there, John, you're beginning to sound like an Englishman. Be careful. Um, but John, great to have you here uh, this evening. Uh, the second speaker will be Cory Shaka, who works down at the IISS, long experience in foreign policy, uh, thinking both strategically and historically about what this current administration means for the United States. Her current position, by the way, is Deputy Director General of the Institute of, Inst Institute of Strategic Studies. Down the road there. Uh, so, Cory, welcome again. Very nice to have you back again. Uh, Pete Trubovitz, I think everybody will know. He's the head of department of the International Relations Department. He arrived here many years ago, some years ago, I'd say not many years ago, uh, from the University of Texas in Austin. Peter is a specialist on American foreign policy, particularly the relationship between what America does in the world and, and domestic, uh, domestic foreign policy. He also is a very successful director of the United States Center at the LSE. So, Peter, great to have you again. <laughs> and finally, last but not least, again, a very old friend, uh, Leslie Vinjamuri who is at SOAS, but is also head of the U.S. and America's program at Chatham House and reader in international relations at SOAS, University of London. And by the way, if you didn't know who I am, my name is Mick Cox, and I'm at the LSE, and I do all sorts of things. So welcome to this event. Uh, we're going to do it from the from seating here, although Peter, I think, wants to stand up. Uh, whether you want to, Peter, it's entirely up to you. Each speaker will speak for about 10 minutes. We want some hard-hitting points to be made, one way or another. And then we'll open it up for questions and answers. So I wonder if you could give a very warm uh, LSE welcome to the man from All Souls, although basically he lives at Princeton, John Eikenberry. Great to be here and uh, to be with uh, old friends on stage and uh, to talk about this, this topic. Um, well, two years into the Trump administration, uh, two years into his presidency, I think we can say Trump is still the great disruptor. Uh, you can describe Trump's foreign policy with nine key words. <laughs> Ignore, withdraw, cancel, resist, shirk, abandon, and the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Trump is not the only cause of today's growing global disorder. Uh, in some sense, he is both cause and consequence. Uh, he's catalyzing and feeding on uh, uh, this larger uh, disorder that we see afoot in the world today. But he clearly is at the, the leading edge. In many ways, you can see him as the kind of avatar of the global revolt against liberal modernity. He's both uh, causing it and feeding off of it. Under Trump's watch, almost all the global institutions, uh, regional orders, uh, strategic relationships are breaking down or uh, weakening. Trade uh, and NATO is one example. NATO, uh, excuse me, trade and WTO, NATO and the alliance system, the G7. Remember the last G7 when Trump walked out because he didn't want to sign that communique that committed the uh, leaders to a rule-based international order. Uh, the G20 as well, weakening. Arms control uh, coming backwards from the old uh, Cold War zenith of international uh, cooperation. Climate cooperation has gone down. Uh, human rights uh, uh, um, agreements uh, are weakening as well. So in many ways, across the full spectrum of the international order, uh, uh, Trump is putting a wrecking ball to the system that we've seen over the last seven decades. The capacity of the global system to engage in collective uh, problem solving, uh, to tackle urgent problems is as weak as it's been in the post-war era. And it's likely to continue this way for the tenure of his administration because Trump doesn't get feedback that forces him to alter his thinking. Uh, he doesn't see or learn from failures. Indeed, he doesn't see them as failures, which is, of course, the first step that would lead us to think that there might be some learning and evolution. Uh, this is a pretty remarkable situation. I think we're all, in some sense, puzzled that we're at this point in a kind of world historical sense. Uh, we didn't think we'd be on this stage debating this topic. Uh, as scholars of international relations, we're uh, puzzled because it doesn't quite fit with our narratives and theories. Um, history is full of stories of great powers that rise and decline, international orders that, uh, that uh, rise and fall, come and go, but it's very hard to see in history uh, a case of a leading state, a hegemonic state, that sa is sabotaging or vandalizing its own order. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, but yet that is in some sense what we see today. It's a little bit like watching the sack of Rome when it's not being sacked by the Goths or the Vandals, but by the Romans, uh, indeed by the emperor. Nero fiddled why Rome burned Trump tweets. <laughs> the question we are all asking is, is Trump an aberration or for a, a kind of four-year detour, or is uh, this the new America? I think foreign ministries around the world are asking that question. Is this something that will pass, or is this the new face of the United States? Is it a one-off event, or is, it, is he ushering in a world historical turn? Is he prologue or is he epilogue? No one knows for sure. The 2020 election will be huge. That may be even a Trumpism right there. Uh, it will be an important uh, uh, moment when he will either be ratified or he will be repudiated. And that will be an important moment. And if we knew the outcome, we could say much more about this phenomenon more generally. But even if Trump is defeated, and I would say I think that is the more likely outcome, uh, his larger pullback in the context of everything else that is happening 
uh, from a kind of hegemonic leadership position. Uh, he has and he will continue because of this to be triggering strategic rethinking across uh, the world. Uh, and this is, of course, because for 70 years the U.S. has played this role as a kind of system organizer, putting itself at the center of an international order, playing the role of first citizen, upholding a system of alliances, of trade, of rules and institutions, the system organizer uh, capstone role, which uh, I don't think uh, Trump acknowledges or that those around him see as, as in some sense, a, a kind of structural premise for thinking about what the United States does in the world. But yet for 70 years the U.S. did large parts of the international order uh, accommodated themselves over the, over the last 70 decades to this order. Some took advantage of it, some worked around it, uh, some integrated into it. Almost all of the world, however, premised their foreign policies on its continued existence. Today, they cannot make that assumption. So the future will be marked by, I think, a multifaceted adjustment to this void at the center of the international order, generating hedging, realignments, new relationships, or just simply moving on. Um, keep your eye on South Korea, or for that matter, Germany. Four larger background international factors are adding to this erosion of the order that Trump is presiding over. One, of course, is the rise of China, the kind of global power distribution. And that is important because China, of course, will have more power to resist the United States, to set its own agenda. Uh, and as China rises, countries think about that. And not, it's not so much the new capabilities that China will have, let's say, over the, the next 10 years. It's the anticipation that other countries have of the continuation of that process, which will lead to a 1,000 uh, decisions every year in a 100 different countries that will change the l landscape going forward. Secondly, the weakening of liberal democracy more generally around the world. It's not just in the United States. And the unraveling of post-war uh, arrangements, political bargains, class compromises, growth coalitions, advancement opportunities, all those things are, are crashing down. Thirdly, the rise of, no, of non-Western narratives or illiberal ideologies and political projects. The rise of what you might call illiberal internationalism as a political movement, uh, with Putin as a kind of pope and emperor of an unholy empire dedicated to uh, uh, all things non-Western and all things non-liberal. Uh, that is a condition that, uh, uh, in, in large sense, uh, should be uh, confronted in, in some sense by leading states, but, but the current occupant of the, of the White House is not predisposed to rise to the occasion and, and make the, the, the grand fight over basic issues of how do we want to live our lives, what kind of politics and economics and social life do we want to construct together. Mm. Fourth, the sheer complexity of 21st century problems of interdependence, climate change, financial crises. There will be, in the next five years or ten years, a financial crisis, a, a serious one. It's endogenous uh, to capitalism. We aren't prepared for it. WMD proliferation, pandemics, they haven't gone away. So even if we were under the best of governance arrangements worldwide, we would be uh, requiring ourselves to tackle more complex problems than the architects of the past 
uh, period, uh, the post-war period, uh, had to confront. So to wrap this up, even if Trump is pushed off stage, there will be a long period of struggle over the rules and institutions of global order. Even before Trump, this was a problem. It's not simply that he changed the circumstances. There was a weakening of, we'll call it the establishment internationalists in Europe and the United States. Conservative internationalists were weakened or even delegitimated in various ways by the Iraq War. Liberal internationalists were discredited uh, by the 2005 financial crisis. So in some sense, there is a, uh, a weakness, as I suggested, uh, in the uh, central ideas and institutions that would step forward in the wake of, of Trump's departure. They aren't prepared for that. Now is the time for these groups to rethink their vision. To end on a positive note, okay. <laughs> help me out. Um, the good news, three points. Trump is not uh, compiling a record uh, on which a lasting ideological agenda can be built. Um, uh, there are very few people, aside from a very small group of his so so-called base, that would say this is something we want to continue indefinitely. Secondly, there are constituencies. There are constituencies across the world for some kind of open, rule-based, decent kind of international order, decency. We're really at that level where we're trying to put down a marker for what would be the proper kinds of arrangements we want to have worldwide. So that's still there, and it's waiting for leadership. And then finally, bringing it back to the United States, and I know that my panel members will talk more about this, checks and balances are kicking in. I think the midterm election suggests that, and it's going to grow. The House now is in the hands of the opposite power. Keep your eye on Representative Adam Smith uh, from, I think, Washington State, uh, chairman, the new chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. The first time in decades uh, that chairmanship belongs to someone who is a true arms controller. Uh, so outside of even the conventional um, uh, security uh, um, uh, ideologies of Washington. So there is something that's going to happen in the next cycle, and I think that will keep us from going completely into the ditch. So that's my good news. Right. <laughs> yeah. So keep your eye on Adam Smith. We've been doing it since 1776, so, you know. Uh, with no more ado, Corey, over to you. Thanks, John. Great. So I agree with much of John's criticism of the president's willful destructiveness. Um, and I do think he's the first American president um, in my lifetime, certainly, who once elected didn't try and unify the country and heal the bonds of a political campaign. He, he thrives on the friction and the uh, confrontation that he fosters. Um, and so he's tailor-made for the Twitter age. Uh, but I, I think a couple of things. I think John underestimates the president's enduring appeal in American politics uh, and also underestimates the likelihood of him getting reelected and overestimates the ability of the House to do much to constrain the president. Uh, but I am going to be much more optimistic in conclusion than John was. <laughs> Uh, so, so the president uh, 
you know, he's an ignorant bigot, and he has been <laughs> forever. Uh, Tom Wright's terrific piece from January of 2016 outlining the consistency of President of Donald Trump's views across the last 40 years is well worth reading if you haven't read it yet. Um, it, it's the definitive look at what the president believes and how obdurate those beliefs are despite an avalanche of information to the contrary. Um, and uh, one of the things I learned working in a White House and on a presidential campaign is that people who get elected president, it's really hard to get elected president in the United States of America. It's a rough grind for about 18 months of brawling. Um, people who succeeded it tend to think they know what they're doing <laughs> and they tend not to take a whole bunch of new advice. And so, you know, as Herodotus taught us all, character is destiny. And the president's character is fixed. As John said, he doesn't learn from his mistakes. He doesn't even acknowledge his mistakes, because after all, he did get elected president of the United States. Um, and my assessment of the president's first two years in office is in the first year, he and the people closest to him were still kind of shocked that that they actually pulled this scam off. Um, and, uh, and the president, the number of people who took themselves out of consideration for elite jobs in the administration left a sort of island of misfit toys around the president. Um, and so what is surprising is that they have not had more major policy failures than they have. Mm. And I like Ben Wittes' description that the administration's malevolence is actually outpaced by their incompetence. <laughs> so if you think about, for example, um, the Muslim ban that was the first piece of policy activity that the administration tried to put in place, any competent lawyer could actually have structured one that would have been bigoted but in delicate ways that hid behind other pieces of constitution, right? They just didn't know what they were doing and it took them three iterations before they could get one that was cloaked enough that it could pass constitutional scrutiny. Um, uh, so, so the president initially, um, you know, had a lot of bad ideas and a lot of people who didn't know how to get anything done. What I think John Kelly's appointment in the White House Chief of Staff's office did was give you somebody who shares the president's views who knows how to get things done. And so you begin to see more effective policy there. I think the, the national security um, agencies, so the intelligence community, the Defense Department, the State Department, in the first 18 months of the president's administration were all run by reliably sensible establishment figures. Although parenthetically, I would not have guessed Rex Tillerson could be that bad at his job, <laughs> given that he had run a successful global company. Uh, but for example, uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, gets and deserves an enormous amount of credit for his um, ability to keep the military as apolitical as possible in this wild toboggan ride. But 
Remember that kind of North Korean-looking cabinet meeting where everybody was falling all over themselves to talk about uh, how wonderful the president was? And, and all of the news media focused on the Secretary of Defense saying nothing of the sort, saying instead what a privilege it was to work for the men and women of America's armed forces. He was not the first person in the mm. cabinet who made – Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, was the first person who, who said what a privilege it was to work for the men and women who put their lives on the line for our country every single day. So the good news is that I think um, the national security uh, departments are still in more or less reliable hands. Uh, but the challenge is that you'll notice the people the president's firing or talking about firing are all of the reliably establishment figures because as the president grows in confidence, he is getting rid of people who are serving as restraining forces on him and uh, trying to include people in the cabinet, the new national security advisor, for example, who are much more closely aligned with his own views. And so you can expect more reckless policies in the coming two years. Um, uh, and he, he has a reasonable chance of getting reelected for first because um, it depends on who Democrats nominate and Bernie Sanders all over owning the opposition to the Yemen war and talking about how he's going to run again, and Clinton, both of whom are over 70 years old, by the way, talking about how she would like to be president, actually doesn't help the Democratic agenda. Um, the Democratic Party has a magnificent uh, bench of young talent and, and you wouldn't know it looking at the leadership of the Democratic Party. So if they either choose somebody older than my mother or um, choose somebody starry-eyed and so progressive that Republicans and independents won't vote for them, because American elections get carried by independents, my friends, mm -hmm. And one of the effects of the Trump presidency is a whole lot of Republicans becoming independents. That's where 2020, the battleground for the presidency, is going to be fought. And if Dems nominate somebody sensible and unobjectionable, they could likely take it away. But if they don't, what Republicans are saying is, yes, the president's a national disgrace, but... Supreme Court judges rolling back the regulatory state. There, there is not an inconsequential agenda for actual Republicans to support this president um, if mm. Democrats put up somebody starry-eyed. And the last thing is what the last thing the president has going for him uh, going forward is that Americans are exasperated with our politicians. I mean, that's our general state. But, but especially in the last 15 years, because as globalization advances, um, it's sort of governance is having the same crisis that bookstores have, right? The small and local are treasured, and everybody, and Amazon is world conquering, and everything in the middle falls out. So Americans like their state and local government, they hate the federal government, and they feel like it's out of their control. And what President Trump is doing is what he campaigned on and said he would do. And that buys him some space from people who are searching for authenticity, even if it's of the president's variety. 
last thing I'll say, America and the world. I agree with John that um, the that the checks and balances are holding, right? So the president targets the press routinely, and yet investigative journalism is in its heyday in these United States. You will notice that the president's tax returns are now out and being quoted. I'm astonished it took this long, but I'm proud of journalism in America that we are now going to get this information to educate voters. Um, I also think the international order is holding up a lot better than you would expect, and for two reasons. One, the order itself is sticky. It'll take time for hedging. I agree with John, the South Koreans are clearly hedging. The president might not have uh, made the North Koreans fearful of what we were going to do, but he sure made the South Koreans fearful of what we were going to do. And they don't care about North Korean nuclear weapons. They are trying to dial down tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Um, but the other thing that's great about both America and the liberal order on the America front, the president is not the country. He's not the entirety of the country. The House is going to bog him down in investigations, much more important than what Adam Smith can do on arms control. Um, no legislation is going to get passed because we have a government created by people who wanted the government to be able to do nothing unless you could get a strong, broad public consensus. Um, so, so very little is going to happen, which means you'll see an avalanche of executive orders, as you did in the Obama administration when the president didn't invest in getting congressional support. The last thing I will say, the saving grace of my sweet provincial country, <laughs> is that, um, the, that we as a people are very often better than we as a government are, and it's a great blessing that the government controls so little in the United States. <laughs> Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, announced about two months ago that the first country that was going to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals is actually the United States of America. <laughs> and yeah. the president withdrew from the accord. The federal government is overtly hostile to it. But the great golden state of California and sanctimonious Tim Cook with Apple computers <laughs> and Michael Bloomberg's money and 31 mayors in the United States and American consumers who want the world to be a better place are dragging us across the finish line. And that is our ultimate salvation, us being better than our government. Thank you very much. Thanks for it. Peter, over to you. I'm going to stretch my legs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Being head of department, you know. That's, that's it. Problem. That'll do it. Um, <laughs> Peter, yeah. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be here, and I want to, you know, um, I want to thank Mick, and, you know, Mick has done so much to make <laughs> ideas um, really the, the great foreign policy think tank that it, it is um, today, and it's always good to be involved in your activities and, and events. So Mick asked us um, to reflect on, on Trump's first two years in office, and so I was thinking about this, kind of went through the same exercise that, that John did on, on the flight back to London earlier today. I was thinking there are no kind of shortage of words that that come to mind. There's even a little bit of overlap, disruptive, when you think of Trump, 
polarizing, disturbing, maddening, <laughs> exhausting. Mm. I could go on, but I think you get the point. <laughs> Basically, Trump has gotten our attention. And along the way, I think he's revealed many things about um, the United States that were not fully appreciated two years ago, two-plus years ago, let's say. The depth of white working-class resentment in the United States, the disconnect that exists between urban and rural America, and I think the limitations of America's system of checks and balances. On the foreign policy side, Trump's presidency, I think, has also revealed um, just how soft and tentative um, America's commitment to liberal internationalism has become. Um, the process began long before Donald Trump got the presidential itch, but it really has, I think, accelerated on his, his watch as president. And, and what I want to focus my comments on are um, this particular point and, and, and what, you know, the kind of motivation is behind his attack on liberal internationalism, or what he calls globalism, um, and what it might mean for the United States going forward. Like all presidents, as Corey pointed out, I mean, I, I, I agree with this, that, you know, like all presidents, Donald Trump came with a, with a worldview. Um, he came with some basic ideas about America's um, international interest and how best to pursue them. In, in Trump's case, the core idea was a simple one. It's basically that America's investment in trade liberalization, collective security, and international governance no longer pays the kind of dividends that it once did or that they once did. Whatever returns those liberal internationalist policies may have generated for the United States in the past, they are, Trump believes, now sources of weakness and decline. And he laid that case out clearly on the campaign trail. Well, pretty clearly on the campaign trail. But also in his inaugural address, I mean, where he said, you know, from this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's only going to be America first. America first. And agree with him or not, he basically has made good on his pledge. He's acted on these things. And I'm not going to go through the whole litany of kind of Trump ruptions, you know. I mean, that, that, you know, John covered a lot of them. I mean, it's, you know, it started right away with the decisions to abandon TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, put the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership, TTIP, on hold launch a trade war with China, pull out of the Paris Climate Treaty and the Iranian nuclear deal, sow doubts about the credibility of America's commitments to both its European and its Japanese allies, and turn a blind eye, I think, to authoritarian leaders' flagrant violations of human rights and the rule of law. 
And I'm just getting started because it's a long, long list. Now, of course, none of this has gone down and well in places like London, and there are a lot of people, as we've pointed out, in the United States that are very unhappy with Trump's actions. And so it makes you wonder, like, why would he push so hard in this direction in the first place? Well, I mean, one possible explanation is the guy just loves conflict, and you really shouldn't dismiss that, you know. But I think there are reasons to think that his actions are more deliberate and more purposeful than they are impulsive, even though I concede that he's fairly impulsive in the middle of the night with, you know, Twitter. The question I think you have to ask is why might Trump find it in his political self-interest to challenge these long-standing liberal international nostrums like free trade or collective security or global governance. There are a number of reasons, but I think two are really important. The first has to do with geopolitics, and the second has to do with domestic politics. With respect to geopolitics, Trump's approach, I think, is based on the idea that America's competitors and its allies need the United States more than it needs them. Put another way, he's basically trying to exploit America's structural power advantages, its global military reach, the dollar's privileged position in the world economy as a reserve currency, and access to the huge American market. And he's basically betting that America's structural advantages can be leveraged, he loves that word, leveraged to force others to make concessions. That Germany in the end will prefer increasing its share of GDP devoted to defense rather than have Trump just continue hammering away at NATO. That Mexico in the end will prefer making concessions over the border than to have worsening relations with its northern neighbor. That Beijing will ultimately, at the end of the day, Xi Jinping will make concessions on trade rather than see China become the poster child for free trade bashing in the United States. In short, I think what Trump is doing is he's betting that there's no other state that has the power and desire to challenge the United States. And most, if not all, of America's friends will conclude at the end of the day that they're better off working with him rather than against him. And the thing about this is for Trump, this vision or this approach that is playing tough with America's competitors and allies also really works well for him domestically. While his claims that America's getting the kind of short end of the stick uh, internationally is not the only reason he got elected, these arguments did register with a significant portion of the public, including many voters who are nominally Democrats who, like him, are no longer convinced that internationalism is in the country's best interest. And rightly or wrongly, they see cheap Chinese imports, 
illegal Mexican immigrants and free-riding NATO allies as evidence that internationalist policies that once worked for the United States no longer pay the same kind of economic dividends for the country or for individual American voters. And Trump basically got elected on the backs of these people. And many of his foreign policy initiatives basically are aimed at this constituency. Now, whether his actions from pulling out of TPP and TTIP or raising immigration barriers or redoubling America's commitment to fossil fuels truly serve the interests of these voters, that's questionable. But this is a case where perceptions matter more than reality. The more Trump pushes back against globalism, the more credible he appears to these voters. All of which is to say that for Trump, acting and attacking globalism basically pays domestic dividends. And so this is also why Trump is drawn to it. I mean, from his perspective, there's relatively little cost internationally and a great deal of payoff domestically. Or as he might put it, it's a win-win. But is it? So every president's strategy rests on assumptions about what the strategy will yield internationally. And that's true of Donald Trump, just like it was true of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who hammered into place liberal internationalism some 70-plus years ago. Trump's strategy is based on a bet that America can challenge and change key features of the international order that it created without fueling centrifugal forces that it cannot control. In thinking about Trump's approach, I'm reminded of a book um, written by Walter Lippmann, kind of America's leading commentator in the 20th century. It's called U.S. Foreign Policy, Shield of the Republic. You can still find it in the library. It's going to be dusty, but it's there. And it's, it's a short read, but it's, and it's a very good read. He wrote in the middle of World War II, and he wrote that the key to effective statecraft lies in bringing into balance with a comfortable surplus of power in reserve the nation's commitments and the nation's power. Statesmen, he argued, must keep their country's ends and means, its commitments and power and balance. And those who forget that simple rule of statecraft, they're courting disaster. Now, Lippmann's famous phrase about commitments and power is often interpreted as a risk, a warning about the risk of strategic overextension the danger of making commitments abroad that cannot be sustained at home, either economically or politically. This is the danger or the risk that Trump's foreign policy seeks to temper and reduce. It reflects his view that America's leaders, Republican as well as Democratic, have foolishly squandered America's bargaining power or leverage in making commitments that require too much of America and too little of others. Now, Lippmann was a student of history, 
And so he was acutely aware of this danger and this risk. But writing in the middle of World War II, it's not the, the danger that he warned about. Mm. <clears throat> he focused instead on a different risk, the risk of underextension. How could that be? He was writing at the time when the United States, the full fury of American power was being used against Germany and, and, and Japan. Lippmann was looking over the horizon, and he was convinced that the United States and its allies would win the war. What he feared is they would lose the peace, much like they had after World War I. His worry is that the same mistake would be made again. that America would come home, that it would pick up its marbles, that it would retreat. The world wouldn't remain peaceful if it did it, he argued. Basically, he said an ounce of prevention was worth a pound of cure. That kind of thinking, as both John and Corey pointed out, is what guided American foreign policy for decades. And to be sure, in the name of prevention, America often, often overreached, taking on more than it could handle, most notably in Vietnam and most recently in Iraq. Those were huge strategic blunders, and Donald Trump was not wrong to point to those excesses in his run for the presidency. But America's commitment to globalism is not only a story of failure. The same commitment to deep international engagement has done much to keep kind of regional security dilemmas in Europe and Asia in check, basically to keep the peace. Why should we think that if the United States retreats from its commitments in Asia or Europe, that it will enhance stability? I mean, why should we expect Beijing and Moscow to refrain from exploiting the resulting power vacuums or others to step up and check those kinds of ambitions and adventurism in the absence of American leadership? It's possible, but it's just a bet. Why take that bet? Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and others like them have thought a good deal about the problem of strategic overextension. And their right to question un the unbridled exercise of American power and the overzealous projection of American values. But they have not thought about the opposite problem, the risk of doing too little to maintain international order and to cultivate and to nourish international society. And Trump, in his zeal, I think, to hedge against one risk, has basically exposed all of us to another one. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, Peter. Uh, and uh, Leslie, for the last word. Great. I'm going to keep my comments relatively brief because I, there's a lot on the table and um, I know we want to get to all of you, but I do want to start by saying thank you to Mick Cox because oh. not only is this about his book um, uh, with, with Doug Stokes, but LSE Ideas, in, you know, I, I'm an alum, a very proud alumni, 1992 MSC International Relations from the LSE, and when we were here it was a fabulous place, but, um, 
but we didn't have LSE ideas, and it was, I think, something that was clearly uh, needed and that we've all benefited a tremendous amount from, not least me. I'm a visiting senior fellow and, uh, and on the board. So I love it, and I think it's, it's fantastic, not least for these kinds of events. You've got a free book now. <laughs> I already have a free book. You've got one. Oh, yeah. In my office. Oh, right. Um, I want to comment just briefly on, on two big questions that are out there. John alluded to them. Everybody has. We've been talking about them for a long time. The first, very briefly, I'll say a few words about, and the second one a, a, a bit more at length. Um, one is, you know, what was Trump inevitable? And, and the reason, and, and everybody's been asking this, right? Was he a symptom or is he a problem? We know he's both. But the, the inevitability question, I think, has been really important for those of us um, sitting and living in Europe, and especially for Europeans, because it is the question that people need to understand in order to devise a, an effective response to this administration. Is it something that's inevitable? If the answer to that question is yes, then inevitably it means that there needs to be something other than a workaround. There needs to be a rethinking, a strategic shift, a design plan that, that isn't just haphazard, that isn't just sort of knocking at doors. Um, and so I think the inevitability question, even though sometimes we get a bit tired of it because it has been so much asked and so difficult to answer and sometimes seems so pointless, um, it is actually fundamentally of very great significance. And I would argue that, um, that it's partly irrelevant, but, but my short answer would be Trump was by far from inevitable. Um, but that it's partly irrelevant because what Donald Trump has done very effectively is to create something that has a degree of staying power. I would disagree with, with um, Corey's very eloquent estimation of how significant the staying power is now of that very vocal and empowered minority. Nonetheless, while this president could, or, or whatever president was, would have been elected in 2016, could have made a number of choices even in the, on the back of structural decline, the most unequal nation in the world, a devastating 2008 financial crisis, could still have made a number of internationalist choices, albeit with some recalibration. This is not what this particular president chose to do. He was knocking at an open door on certain issues, and I would point to three. One is trade, one is China, they overlap, and the third is Iran. Um, but he has very effectively continued to campaign through his rallies, and he has continued to embolden, empower, and stoke a particular element, which is a minority element of the American population, which we tend to refer to as the white American high school educated, some people say not educated, but I would say high school educated male, the women have peeled off, as we saw in the midterm elections. 53% of, of white American women voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and that number split majority, a significant majority of white educated women voted Democrat in the midterms and a significant ma majority of white female high school educated women voted Republican. So the fractures in my view are clearly there. So the inevitability, in, in the inevitability question is extremely important. This wasn't inevitable, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have very significant uh, stay, staying power. The second thing that I want to really touch on is this question of, you know, is Donald Trump a game changer? And, and I would argue um, uh, in alignment with some of my panelists, although there were different parts in, in, each one of, in each of their remarks, that on the international stage, um, 
he's clearly been a game changer, right? I agree with everything that John said. But some of, much of that, I think, can be walked back when he's gone, not easily, but can be walked back. And, and Corey pointed to one of the most fantastic examples, which is that set aside the question of whether or not the next American president keeps America in Paris, because, of course, that decision to actually come out doesn't happen until 2020. We have domestic civil society working very hard to meet, to meet the targets. But even in a number of frameworks that, that the American president has taken us out of, those could be walked back. My more um, pressing concern, and, and this is where I think um, John, this is John's second point, and John talked, I think it was your second point, about the weakening of liberalism and democracy. And for me, and I think this is something that I think about a lot intellectually, but it's also something that I think a lot about personally because I've been an American um, living abroad for a very long time, um, on and off since 1988, but consistently since 2006. And it's very clear to me that what a number of very serious scholars have said about American power, some people call it soft power, Jonai, some people call it symbolic power, but it's very clear to me that a lot of America's power has to do not with what America does, which isn't to say that that's insignificant, but it has to do with what America is. And that is amplified by the fact that we must be I don't have the data to shore me up, but we must be. The United States must be the most watched country <laughs> in the world. Um, and, you know, if you want some recent evidence of that, the number of discussions globally of the midterm elections, the number of international um, media stations that covered the Kavanaugh hearings, it's just extraordinary. But, of course, the stems back far, uh, goes, goes much further back than that. So... On this question of what America is, um, I think there's a disconnect. So I think Donald Trump is clearly a game changer. But I think that that effect has been amplified by the fact that the international news media, for better and worse, has shed so much light on the dark and the ugly side of contemporary American domestic politics. And that the positive stories, some of which um, Corey noted and which I think we're all those of us who are watching more carefully are very aware of the pushback from the Ninth Circuit, the pushback from the courts in California, the mobilization of civil society in the back of the Muslim ban, any number of very, the journalists, the media coverage, a lot of that gets lost, right? Most people will have watched the people on the street on the evening and the weekend following the first Muslim ban, but they won't have followed what then happened, even though it didn't end up in a great place. So America, what America represents symbolically to the world, of course, comes down to things like uh, the four freedoms, um, America's hypocrisy, right, which I remember going back to the post uh, during the um, George Bush administration, people used to say when, when we wrote, when we made torture legal, a number of people, LSE academics even, used to say, but we loved America's hypocrisy. America's hypocrisy is great. We understand that you don't always stand up to your ideals of human rights and liberalism and the rest of it, but it has a very important and significant effect. And we know that liberal constructivist human rights scholars have mapped out what this effect is, which is that it emboldens and it, it provides a resource to civil society groups across the world to put pressure on their own governments to live up to the liberal standards that America frequently hasn't lived up to. So one of the things that we've lost in the domestic context, it's very w publicly available abroad, um, is, is hypocrisy, because we now have a president that do doesn't actually articulate the liberal 
understanding of what America is or and it's not even funny and I love laughing with you but it's really deeply disturbing right the, the commitment to democracy the commitment to the rule of law the commitment to the independence of the um, intelligence agencies the media the judiciary to human rights to liberalism to the four freedoms it simply isn't there and to me that form of American power, the greatest democracy in the world, is the thing that is the most um, significant setback when it comes to America's role in the world. So just to conclude with a couple of um, where do we go from here, you know, is it recoverable? Uh, the foreign policy thing that I think is recoverable, even though it's in a deeply problematic place right now, is the transatlantic partnership. And I think it's recoverable primarily for a negative rather than a positive reason, which is that there's really nowhere else to go in a world where the most important, significant geopolitical relationship is going to be between the U.S. and China. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a long day. It's a, it's a, it's a cold day um, before anybody's actually going to jump to the other side. So the fact of American power is very hard to ignore. And that geostrategic context is one that I think will uh, drive and cement um, the transatlantic partnership, but without perhaps the goodwill and the values that have underpinned it, which means that it's going to be a whole lot harder. And then finally, um, is it recoverable on America's symbolic and soft power? Well, I think that illiberalism in America is going to run its course. And, um, and this is where I would agree, disagree, actually, with Corey, although I don't know. I think you're much more. You had, you had ambivalence in there about how empowered and emboldened the Trump supporters are. We used to say demography was destiny and, you know, America was certainly going to be always run by Democrats. That's <laughs> not been true. Um, but I think it's going to run its course. And I think that the midterm elections were a very clear sign of that. So domestically, I think it's recoverable. Whether that translates internationally, I'm not so sure. Thanks so much, Doug. That's great. Uh, just one please. Thank you very much for all the compliments you're paying me. I love it. Keep going. Um, and it's not just me who runs ideas, by the way. Uh, by the way, this is also terrible self-promotion. There is a book here. Um, it, it, it's beautifully priced uh, at some extraordinary amount of money. But uh, three of the authors who are in it are here tonight. Me, him, and him. So, if you want to buy it at the very reasonable price, we 30, don't get a cut. Thirty-two pound ninety-nine, an absolute snip. We will sign it and give you back the two pound ninety-nine. <laughs> or John will. Well, you got, you got plenty. He's, 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 he's okay. He's doing okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to ask just one question. I'm going to. I'm not going to ask any question. I'm going to ask each of the panelists very briefly if they'd like to make a comment, one comment on what has previously been said by the other panelists. I'll, st I'll go in the reverse order. John, anything you'd like to pick up on, on what anybody said, just briefly, and then we'll open it up for a Q&A. John. Um, I agree with my colleagues on the panel, really. Uh, I, I guess if I were to make one sort of uh, uh, comment, I would say I don't quite go as far as Peter would to create a sense of coherence and strategic thought behind Trump. I just I see it much more as attitude and reactionaryism and and a kind of harnessing a, a kind of uh, 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 revolt against uh, internationalism. Uh, and in that sense, it is there's a consistency. It, 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 it's, you see it across issue areas. But the sense that it's uh, based on a premise that if we renegotiate and 
bargain harder here and pull back there, there will be a new equilibrium where we will be better off. And uh, I, I don't see that uh, at all, uh, uh, either domestically or internationally. Domestically, uh, the people who voted for Trump are not doing very well. There's, there's, an interesting, uh, there's an interesting study of the counties. They have a county level. There are thousands of counties in the United States. And which way they voted. And those that voted for Trump... Uh, are doing less well than those counties, thousands of them, that voted for Hillary. So he's, he's not delivering to his own constituency. But internationally, you would have to be able to say, uh, to evaluate Trump, that this is a strategy. We're going to run it for four years. And we would expect, based on your effort to balance ends and means and reequilibrate and rethink about uh, Walter Lippmann ideas that we would be stronger, we would be on a, a more solid footing, uh, we would have a more educated, more uh, uh, technologically prepared uh, society for the next 10 years, that uh, all of this would be part of a plan that would we would then be able to say, yes, that was a strategy, and now we know uh, whether it works or not. But it's it's a it's a hodgepodge. It's uh, it's not it's not even saving money. Trump is complaining about the U.S. having to do everything, but he is raising defense spending by ten percent. So he is going to be spending more money, borrowing more uh, of our children's uh, future tax dollars to uh, pay for a larger military. This is not Walter Lippmann, uh, and so I think. Uh, uh, confronting China, but failing to pass the TPP. Uh, It's all a jumble of attitudes and impulses, and it doesn't have a deep logic. And even if it did, you would want to be able to say, here's what you are promising, here's the metric for determining whether you're right. And domestically and internationally, it looks like all the accounts are going down, not up. Okay. Uh Corey, why don't you, anything you want to add to what's been said by your, your fellow panelists? Yeah, uh, two points. The first is that I think it's important not to create a mythical American past where we were noble and virtuous and never made any foreign policy mistakes because that's never been true of us. Um, and the fact that we're living in a tumultuous moment Uh, shouldn't cause us to believe that there was ever a time where alliances worked effortlessly and people followed America's lead and we weren't rife with contradictions and racism and difficulty that plague our country. Uh, So um, a lot of this is not news and we're just feeling it intensively because the president's such a good amplifier. The second thing I would say is that uh, I, I would caution my colleagues against treating public attitudes as though they are fixed because they are notoriously malleable. And the Chicago Council on Foreign, Chicago Council on Global Affairs Uh, does annual polls of American public attitudes on foreign policy issues. And on the president's three signature issues, immigration, alliances, and trade, American public attitudes have moved 15% in the two years of the president's uh, leadership of the executive branch of government. And they have moved in opposition to the president's views. So 
My theory of what's going on is that the president's really good at raising first-order questions. Why don't allies do more? Does, isn't trade unfair? Um, people's jobs are going away. He's good at raising first-order questions. Um, and then people think their way through it. They read a bunch of newspaper articles. They reflect on their own experience. And attitudes are shifting against the president, mm -hmm. as I think you saw in the midterm elections, which, by the way, had the largest turnout in an American midterm election in over 100 years. Mm -hmm. So counterfactually, Donald Trump may end up being good for democracy in America by reminding us all mm -hmm. that it really matters if you vote. It really matters if you elect idiots. It really matters to have checks and balances. It really matters to invest in communities and civil society and the force that holds our government in check. Thanks very much, Lizzie. Great words. Uh, Peter. Um, maybe just quickly, uh, first to just respond to John, um, uh, that, um, that my, my, I'm not saying that Trump is right. Um, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, what I'm saying is that um, there's a pattern to his behavior and his actions, which uh, after a while when um, things start to repeat themselves, there's a, a kind of consistency to it. And I, I mean, I think to be fair, I don't know that I really should be, but to be fair to Trump, I mean, um, as Corey pointed out, I mean, you can easily go back to the 1990s, and Trump was hammering back then about how unfair liberal trade was for the United States, and he was also going on about how Europeans were fleecing the United States when it came to NATO. So these are very old themes in his... Um, I, I think the point I want to make, leaving that aside, um, I, I would just say to everybody that um, if you don't have your seatbelts on, you should buckle up because it's going to get worse before it gets better uh, between now and 2020. And I say that for two reasons on the foreign policy front. Um, the first is, is that uh, the loss of the speaker's gavel really means something. Um, and the loss of the House of Representatives. It was a wave election. We're now looking at 40 seats picked up. But they're going to be in a position, the Democrats, where they will investigate him up the wazoo, and Mueller will probably provide enough fodder for them to, to work with. They will find some grounds to, I think, work with Trump on policy, and I can talk through what I think some of those are. But by and large, what Donald Trump is going to find very quickly is his only real play is international. It's not domestic. And so he's going to be looking for stuff internationally to distract the public's attention, to rattle cages. And he's going to be, it's going to be reinforced by another reality, which is that the only way that he can win the 2020 election, I believe, is by polarizing the electorate even further. What he needs to win, he needs a third-party candidate. He needs an independent to run. And the way to get that is to go very hard to the right himself. It will force the Democrats to the left, and it will open up space for someone to consider the middle. And people, you know, John Kasich was on the news on uh, on Sunday um, 
talking about how he wants to put together a ticket that's both Republican and Democrat, you know, that's different than the Democrats and it's different than the Republicans, that is music to Donald Trump's ears because he can win with 35%. He's got 35%. He's right. It doesn't matter what he does. They're there. Okay. Yeah. I hope your advice doesn't reach the White House. <laughs> Leslie. Yeah, very quickly. One is um, I agree that uh, he's not going to deliver and eventually that will – he's not delivering and eventually that will turn up. And I, my sense is that one of the reasons that the economy didn't get more play – got some play, but it didn't get more play in the midterm elections is because ordinary Americans were very clear – that the tax cut may well have benefited them in the short term, but not nearly as much as it benefited wealthy Americans and corporate America. And so it's that unequal, it's that relative difference that I think um, people are very aware of. And, and as that plays out even more, um, I think that that's going to create a problem. And then second point very quickly is that I think, I mean, I'm, I really fully embrace and I'm very optimistic about liberalism being sustained in America and about the, the, the happy, the good story um, s civilly in the United States. But I think there is something different about the, the current, um, despite, you know, the past story of racism and discrimination and all sorts of hypocrisies at home and abroad, I think there is something qualitatively different this time. And I, and I think it comes down to two things. One is that, um, expectations have gone up dramatically, not only within the United States, but globally, of how of, of a certain a, a wide range of um, behaviors, human rights, and all the rest of it. Uh, so the disconnect is bigger because the expectations are higher. But I think that the second thing is that in the past, and this comes a little bit back to the hypocrisy point, I think in the past, America, when it did bad things or supported leaders that you know didn't care about their own people's human rights abuses and all the rest of it, um, that, they were, that, that we were better at obscuring the line between how we treated other people and how we treated our own people. That, there's obviously a lot of problems with how American leaders have treated their own people. But I think that you know, if you go back to torture um, and, the, and, the, and the Bush administration, there was, there was a sense that there was a clear line between us and them. And any number of policies, there's a sense that there's a clear line between us and them. And I think with this administration, it's felt like everybody's up for grabs when it comes to being attacked on any number of issues. Okay, that's great. Uh, I'm going to open up now for questions. I'm sure there's going to be quite a lot. A lot of hands going up there. I'm going to take two or three at a time. Just ask one question. I don't want three questions hidden in one. So there's two guys here. Start here. Yeah. Get, we've only got how many, how many microphones have we got? Well, let's see. We've got three. My God. Four. Four. Oh, four. four. LSE must be investing in technology. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah, please. Quick question. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for your uh, presentation. My name is Julio. I'm a student in uh, international political economy. Question is to Professor Trubovitz, actually. Um, so recently, the EU and China have joined forces with other countries to uh, in, ask the WTO to investigate the U.S. Uh, justification for the steel tariffs uh, in sense of security measures, security concerns. Now, this is one of those rules in the trade regime, one of those unwritten rules that says you don't do this. So the question is, do you think that the EU and China, uh, China willing to do, take this step means that uh, they're actually ready to call on the U U.S.'s bet? Right, the Thank guy you. next to you. I, hope, I bet it's your brother, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> You're next. No, but I also said, yeah, IPE. Um, I'm Niels. I was wondering, I have a 
Um, is this structural chaos of the liberal order, um, when we look at this, there are still institutions, there's still a global currency, um, there's more or less peace, um, so the, China is still rising, um, digital age is on the edge of transforming our lives. Um, What's the so, question? So, when the best, so is it the best thing that can happen that this chaos is happening now and that we can hedge against it, think about it, what we do, and comparing it to the post-war, First yeah. World War order where we, there were ideas how to yeah. structure it. It, it so. ain't so bad as we think it is, yeah, basically, I think, because that's what I'm getting. Uh, yeah, I'm just going up there, take a couple up there, yeah, sorry, I'm going to bring as many people in as possible and I'll come down here too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, anybody's got a hand up, just stick a mic in their hand. Yeah. Don't have a discussion about it, just do it. Okay. Very good. Hi, Zach Pakin, uh, Assistant Lecturer, University of uh, Kent in IR. Thanks all for your great presentations, and nice to see many of you again. Uh, so there's a case to be made that uh, rather than any sort of retrenchment, we're actually seeing uh, an attempt to preserve American preeminence under Trump, and that therefore he represents a decoupling of the liberal international order from the pursuit of, of American unipolarity and preeminence in that sense. Um, and so my, my question to you uh, is, against the backdrop of the fact that the over-pursuit and over-extension of uh, the liberal international order actually resulted in a form of erosion of that order, do we think that the decoupling coupling of the liberal international order from the pursuit of American unipolarity is a force for stability or a force for instability. If you have time, feel free, all of you, to take a uh, crack at that if that's okay. But, Corey, in particular, if you'd like to take a crack at it with reference to the great um, book review that you wrote recently on um, the, uh, the Twilight of the Titans in uh, the Atlantic, that'd be uh, fantastic. Okay. Did you write that yeah. book? Yeah, okay. Right. Uh, it's not, I'm coming to somebody down here, the, the woman here, yeah. Uh, yeah, hi. I'm trying to get uh, everybody in, yeah. I want to ask, uh, well, thank ask you for yeah. the presentation. Sure, right uh, my question is for Professor Turowitz. You mentioned um, that the U.S. has been pushing uh, its allies to, con to make concessions. So to what extent do you think Trump can still push, um, for example, China or um, the EU or Mexico to see it in what he wants to achieve uh, to the point that it might break the alliance system? Okay, I got, well, I'll take one final, uh, two questions up here. The gentleman there and the lady in front of me, yeah. Uh, Guy Monson, uh, uh, LSE Ideas Advisory Member. Okay. Uh, after two years, does the panel think we know enough yet to coin the phrase Trumponomics? It seems to include completely unprecedented late cycle stimulus. It seems to include something to do with debt accumulation, deregulation, and a concept of deliberately running the US economy hot. So Trumponomics, is there such a thing? And has it been successful? And will this get him in the White House next time around? And the lady in front, yeah, please, woman in front, please, yeah, hi. Heidi Zamzo, I am um, LSE's student in the Psychological um, and Behavioral Science Department. Um, Corey, you nailed it. And I have to say, hey, hey. <laughs> maybe not Mayflower descendant, but not so proud to be American, but maybe very proud to be sixth generation Californian. Um, <laughs> we are a nation of states, but my question is, do you see us being united states again, or are we going to see more alliances like we did with the Climate, climate Alliance? And lastly, what do you think of a Wexit with California, Oregon, Washington, maybe Nevada, Who? maybe a little BC and Baja? Alexis. West Coast, Ex West oh, Axis. Oh, I thought you said Alexis. A Wexit. Oh, no, sorry. W-E-X-I-T. Okay, great. That's a lot of questions there. And I've got to hand it first to, to you, Corey, because you've got... Massive vote there. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go first on anything you want to pick up? Uh, sure. And all the rest, if you like. Uh, 
first three quick things. <laughs> it seems yes. to me that an, argue, an argument can be made that the way that globalization is yeah. changing the international order is eroding the monopoly of states. And so uh, you see op bigger opportunities for communities of value, for coalitions to come together. Um, uh, so I wouldn't favor the secession of the Western states because I actually think uh, winning the argument about unity is really important to all of us. Second of all, I, I always think I'm the median voter, right? I think I'm an average American voter. And as, as Peter pointed out, this is exhausting. And I really think that... <laughs> You think this is you think this is tiring? Yeah, but you'll be done in March and we'll oh, yeah, oh, yeah. we'll okay. Don't mention Brexit. Sorry, 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 sorry. Thank you, Tom. That I I think presidential elections in the United States tend to be pendular. We choose what we were tired of from the last we choose to get rid of what we were tired from in the last time. And a lot of people were tired of being condescended to yeah. and therefore chose somebody rambunctious. And I think we're likely to choose somebody boring and competent um, in subsequent rounds. Uh, so, so, um, so the erosion of the monopoly of state power, but the emboldenment of civic activism mm -hmm. across state lines, I think we're seeing a lot more of that. On Trumponomics, I think we're seeing, I do not think... He has a theory of the economy. I think he's just bad at math. Um, and on the unipolarity, which is such a wonderful and interesting question, I don't think American power can be sustained separated from the liberal order. I think American hegemony has been both possible and sustainable only because the liberal international order has made it cost-effective for the United States by being magnetic to the voluntary uh, accession by everybody else. And that kind of bare-knuckled attitude that the president takes is already driving up the cost to the United States of its dominance of the order. Mm. Uh, the example that somebody used about uh, Europeans and Chinese banding together, I don't think that's sustainable because the values uh, differential is too big, but the United States' biggest advantage is that other people like us and want to help us do what we think is needed. Um, and once we try and separate that, I think European powers uh, can sustain the liberal order for maybe 15 years, but without us, there's going to be nobody crazy enough to try and do a trans-Pacific trade partnership, much less stick the landing. And so that's the difference that, that the United States provides to the order. Thanks. Thank uh, Leslie, Leslie, do you want, sorry, didn't, didn't mean to uh, Leslie, why don't you just jump in? Anything you want to kind of pick uh, I, up on? A quick, I mean, I guess a quick comment on the Trumponomics. I, I think he, he does think very strategically in the very near term, and it's not about a long-term economic strategy. It's about delivering really important core things that he thinks will matter in, for his political power. So... A broader economic strategy, no. And I, I just wanted to shore up, I guess, what Corey said about U.S. power and its being intimately linked to independent on the liberal order, except I would differentiate. I think it's important to, I mean, and you've done this very well in your writing, but I do think it's important, you know, to 
there, some parts of the liberal order are kind of expensive and not necessarily to the advantage of the United States and other parts aren't. So I think it is uh, a key thing to yeah. try and differentiate some of those. Okay, John? Yeah, on, just on that, um, we often as scholars and observers think of countries that are powerful and therefore capable of building order, that power creates order, but actually it also works the other way around, that orders can create power. And what the United States did, I think, during the last 70 years was use considerable power to build an order that was in some sense requiring enlightened uh, c calculations of its self-interest, that it would tie itself to other countries through institutions, that it would not exploit its uh, disparities of power for short-term gain, that it would put itself in uh, relationships that would allow others to uh, try to influence us, uh, creating voice opportunities, creating compromise situations, and all of that created allies and bandwagoning. And in that sense, uh, unipolarity that emerged after the Cold War was not something that was generated by power capabilities. It was a function of an order that consolidated around the United States. So it was the order that then created power. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, that, uh, that is, is certainly not something that registers in, in, in the White House today. Should I mention something about the kind of the crisis? Quick one, the, John, yeah, yeah, just, on, I, I, in the long run, I'm, I'm actually quite uh, uh, optimistic about some kind of newly configured reformed uh, order that might be broadly called liberal. Now, we, that term is in some sense used so often, we, we, and we mean different things, but uh, open, rule-based, with cooperation that generates mutual gains, diffuse reciprocity, and some kind of shared sense of social purpose, and a kind of progressive view about what our relationship is, gen is going to generate. That kind of uh, general uh, orientation, I think, is is quite uh, uh, something that there's a, there are huge constituencies that want that. Certainly in the liberal democratic world, but even uh, on the periphery of the illiberal world, what, it, it's hard to imagine that the alternative to liberal international order could take a kind of solid form and dominate the world, which would be a kind of imperial order, a spheres of influence, a kind of uh, a, a, a kind of Chinese uh, uh, tribute system. Uh, w w as long as we live in a world where countries prize their sovereignty, a kind of Westphalian world, and we live in a world where those pr those states that prize their sovereignty sovereignty are highly interdependent with each other, indeed experiencing, as it's almost impossible not to, cascades of economic and security interdependence, they will want to and need to cooperate. So. Sovereign states, deeply interdependent, the solution set for governance in that structural setting leads you by dint of self-interest and functional logic to some kind of order that, that has kind of been found itself uh, appearing and reappearing over the last 200 years, a guise of various multilateral uh, structures under the the, the hegemonic leadership of Britain or the United States or, or, the, or, or Europe as a whole. And so I, I think uh, we will kind of stumble forward and find some kind of reformed international order. That they, that they, and to, to kind of have that view, you really do have to believe that, that the world is tractable, that, that, that we can find uh, 
solutions based on on visions of of, of cooperation and bending history through uh, creating institutions uh, together. And so I think that's built, baked into us as, as people. And so I think it's going to be there. I think the, the generation before our generation, Mick, and by the way, ideas is wonderful. I like, yeah, I've always liked you, John. Yeah, I've always, you always had excellent judgment. Um, so so I, I'll, I'll take up the, the yeah, flag yeah. Of, of, of there is a, a bright future. Because of ideas. There we go. Uh, and uh, Peter, over to you. We're getting uh, quite close to time, so, so I'm, I'm conscious. So maybe just two quick responses on yeah. um, Trump economics. So I think the basic goal... Um, is to suck capital back into the United yeah. States. And so the, the, what you have to do is you have to view both the effort to break up the supply chains, which is what's going on with China, in conjunction with the tax cut, the most significant part of it being focused on business. Um, and so the attempt basically to create an environment in the United States that's more attractive for capital. So I do think there's a logic to it. I'm not a big fan of it, but I think there's a, there's a logic to it. On the WTO, uh, you know, if, are they calling Trump's bluff the EU and China? Is that where we're headed? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think they might, uh, but Trump has made it pretty clear that, um, I mean, he has said this, not in these words, that he's not going to... Um, bend a knee when it comes to uh, the WTO. And so I think the problem for the EU and China is, or the risk that they run is in an attempt to kind of get even and balance things, you could actually do further damage to the WTO given the likelihood that Trump will push back or pull out in ways that are not anticipated. Mm. Getting quite close. I'll take one or two quick questions. Um, he, oh, he was good. Let him. He, yeah, he grabbed it. Go okay. for it. Uh, so, yeah. uh, thank you for the lecture. Make I just want to ask question. a short question uh, to, uh, to Professor uh, Eikenberg. Yeah. Uh, to what ex extent will the trade war influence the uh, Chinese New Silk Road plan and uh, right. Made in China, 2025. Right. Thank you. Okay, that's a China question. Be all right. Anybody else down here? I want to. I'll, I'll take the woman there, please, in the middle. Yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Sorry. Um, I'm Carlin from the MSCIR. Excellent. I'm wondering what you think the long-term and short-term impact on soft power would be of the Trump administration. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I saw Mick Jagger do that once. That's terrific. Yeah. I'm, I'm, he did go to the LSC. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys a general question. It's not a prediction. It's a, can a president who's running a, a full employment economy, coming back to your point, Guy, whether it's onomics or not, Anybody who's running a full employment economy where corporate profits are going up, where pension funds are sucking in money, you know, where workers' wages seem to be going up, as far as I can see, I'm, I haven't studied it very, very closely, where the business community, even though they don't individually like Trump, nonetheless feel they've done well out of these tax cuts. And a lot of business people don't like regulation. You know, is it possible that a president will not get re-elected on a buoyant, upwardly mobile economy, whether it's a theory 
or not? And I kind of throw that one out as the last one. And so who, want, who wants to go first? Peter, what do you want? You're, you're I'll the, take that one. You'll take that one. Yeah, yeah. so the answer is yes, oh, and it's a, it's a four-letter word. Oh, gosh, what's that? B-E-T-O. Beto. What? That's very optimistic. Beto O'Rourke. Oh, Beto. So is it possible for a president, for Donald Trump, if the economy is doing really well, to lose in 2020? I think the answer to that is yes. You can. Okay, fine. I'm not predicting it, but I think given everything else and given how polarized the electorate is, it's conceivable. Conceivable, yeah. Uh, Any, Any point. Two points in answer to that. First... People don't always vote their narrow economic interests. There are a lot of things that they think about. Um, And so, yes, I think we actually just saw pretty good evidence that uh, with the economy starting to pick up an enormous amount of speed, the president's still underwater and lost 40 seats in the House. So, yes, I think that's possible. The answer about damage to soft power, I love that question. I think it's extensive in the near term. And uh, I can think of a half dozen examples from the glory days of American hegemony in which we did enormous damage to America's standing in the world. The My Lai Massacre, uh, the 101st Airborne forcibly integrating schools in the American South. Uh, The great thing about America's role in the world is that it's not an absolute metric, it's a relative metric. And uh, as long as China keeps scaring the rest of Asian allies into cooperation with the United States and the fear of the rules-based order evaporating, yes, I do think America can recover, provided Mm. we deserve to recover. Mm. Leslie. Uh, Yeah, the... Well, it's a big it's a big if if the economy remains where it is, but I think that uh, Trump could certainly lose because I, America is the most unequal nation in the world, and he's stoked up and embellished and emboldened those who see themselves as not only doing poorly globally but doing poorly vis-a-vis the elites in the United States. So I think it could be the thing that bites back at him because what he's doing right now. I imagine, we'll see the data, right, is making America more unequal, not less unequal. Um, and then on the soft power, I, I, again, I think the core of the soft power is not going to be what America is doing abroad, it's what America is doing at home. And it can be recovered, but I do think that the damage is very significant. And we're seeing that in a lot of numbers. I was told yesterday that there are more Americans studying in what country was it than that more people studying? Well, the, the study abroad numbers in America have dropped a great deal, and some of the specifics are very interesting. It's one indicator. Okay. Uh, John, the last word, please. Yeah, I think I, think I agree with the last comments that, that, that there's a recovery uh, story that, that can be realized uh, after, after Trump on many of these dimensions. But we would probably be making a mistake if we thought, and I don't think anybody has today, uh, thought that it's all Trump's fault. I mean, there are the deeper problems are there, and I think that it's really important. This is what I was suggesting when I was mentioning that establishment internationalists, they should be listening to Peter, what he's saying, but they should also be trying to, to rethink the vision and make the argument to skeptical publics why should a country be engaged abroad, international. There is a 
a ready audience for that. As Corey said, there is actually a, a supermajority for most of the things that we associate with liberal internationalism, alliances, trade, and, and um, the United Nations, and so forth. Um, and that leads me just to China and this question about, about uh, one belt, one road. I think, I think that's not a solution that gets China out from underneath the problems that are being generated by a trade war. I think it's, it's an important geo-economic uh, 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 initiative by China, but it's not going to put them on a footing to move into the next phase of economic development and avoid the middle income trap, which is the real danger. They need to be trading with the advanced industrial world and, um, uh, and developing the kind of investments, and I think they're trying to do this, to to uh, leap forward into to the next phase of, 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 of advanced development, and they need an open system. So they are constituencies for some kind of uh, a reformed international order. They will have to make uh, uh, compromises on intellectual property rights, and, and some, of, some of what Trump is demanding is actually quite credible. There are uh, real things that need to be negotiated. Uh, so I, I think that that's... Um, that's, that, that China is going to have to uh, uh, find a way to, to suffer through this period and then hopefully uh, do deals with, with uh, the United States and, and find a way to re repair the, the, the trade system because it's, it's taking a real hit right now. I just want to say the last few words very, very quickly. Firstly, to mention the fact that this is part of a series organized by, by the LSE. I think this is an event that the LSE, a type of event that the LSE has done so well and will continue to do so well, not just through LSE ideas, but right across the board. LSE performs, it seems to me, many wonderful functions and it's done so since it was created in 1895. But one of the things it does better than anywhere else is actually to generate public debate like this in front of sizable and good and intelligent, if I might say so, audiences. So it's part of a series which is leading up to the festival at the LSE next year. Uh, I've been thanked very much as the, as the personification of ideas, but there are many, many other people who over the 10 years of our existence have made ideas possible. I won't mention them all. There are two or three sitting in the audience here. There's Gordon Barris over here, John Hughes. There's people up there in the audience. So thank you very much to all of you. And also to my predecessor who worked with me for eight years in ideas, Arnie Westad, who's played a, good, a great role. And also to Christopher Coker, who's now working with me in ideas. But thank you for those compliments. I'll take them back to the team and claim it all for myself, of course. goes without saying. I'd uh, like to thank you for coming along for a great, a great occasion. Uh, you know, we filled the hall with 450 people. That's quite an accomplishment. That is also down to my great speakers. And also, if you want to make me a fortune, buy the book <laughs> and come and buy it. It's out there. So, again, thank you to all of you. Thank you to the great speakers. <laughs>